Well, good morning. Again, welcome to Randall Church. We're starting a new series called In God We Trust. Uh, it was my wife's birthday this week. I'll never tell you how old she turned. That's not allowed. Um, but what we found, it was on Friday, and Friday is my day off. But as you try to plan for that day, we were really surprised at how difficult it was going to be with everything we had going on in our lives to actually celebrate her birthday. So what we ended up doing is we put the kids on the bus. We, uh, then I took one of them to school, and then I came back home, and we took uh, the two younger ones over to a friend's house, and then she agreed to watch them for a couple hours, and then Aaron and I got to go out to breakfast, and then as soon as we finished breakfast, she had to go back and pick up the kids because there's someone, you know, like time was something that we didn't have a lot of, and so if you've been in that situation, we've got four kids and all the moving parts and pieces. We we then got the kids off of the bus, and I pretended to have Aaron get the other ones from school so that I could go get the cake, and then the other one, all of the different pieces and parts that you had to make come together so then we could go to the fall festival at the school and, and all the things that you have to do as a parent. We realize that we don't have nearly as much time as we used to. Uh, for those of you who are in college, or for me, I started out in the military first. Uh, after high school, that season after that, you have way more abundance of time than you realize. You think that you are the busiest person on the planet, and the rest of us in this room are laughing at you right now. Because during that season of your life, for me, I was in the military, and so after we went through a lot of our training, we would start early in the morning, and at times we would start at 6 or 7 in the morning, but we were usually done for the day around 3.30 or 4 o'clock. And so you had all of this time, and I've wasted tons of time playing a PlayStation or running in circles around doing who knows what. And some of you were college students in this phase, and, and you had more free time than you knew what to do. You were supposed to be working on your papers, and you were supposed to be doing all of these things, and, and you did that, but then you had all this extra time uh, to do a number of things. And then you get married, and your time just like immediately gets cut in half. And, and all of a sudden, the, you only have 12 hours a day when you used to have 24 hours a day. And then you start to have kids, and you start to have a job, and it all starts to infringe on your time. I wish someone during that season, and there was a few, and I probably wasn't listening as well as I could, that, that would come alongside of me and say, you know, you have a wealth of time, and maybe you could use it a little bit better. Uh, maybe you could be using this time better. You should be organizing yourself in a way so your time is being used well. Uh, we're talking today about having a wealth of time. That may be one of the things that you have. There's a lot of things that maybe we have a wealth of. Uh, maybe if you're younger, you have a wealth of energy. Uh, you just have energy to do a lot. Uh, we just helped someone move in uh, yesterday here at the church. And the young guys, man, they had some energy. And I, as if I'm not one of the young guys, hopefully I still am. Uh, but they had even more energy just to keep going up and down the stairs and carrying this and carrying that. And Ian, like, he picked up everything imaginable and just carried it. And, like, you're like, all right, well, do it again. And um, so, and he would do it again, which is fantastic. So you've got this wealth of energy. In this room and in a lot of churches, we have a wealth of wisdom. Uh, many of you, you know, you've lived life and you've been married for 50 years and there's those in this room who have been married for five years, and they need you to take them and, and grab them by the hand and say, hey, we need to do lunch some Sunday after church. Because, you know, I'm five years in, or I'm, my wife and I, we're 15 years in, and how do you make it another 45? How do you get through that? How do you go through that? And there's this wealth of wisdom that you need to get through. Because you could just hold on financially, just like financial wealth. You can just hold on to it and never give it away. 
We as a church, or those of you who have grown up in the church, you can have a wealth of understanding of God's Word, and you just hoard it and hold it to yourself. You never give it away. You never realize what it means to actually pour that into the next generation and see what uh, holding on to your relationship with God and never giving it away to someone else. You're wasting it when it could be used for other people and in His glory. This morning in our DNA sessions, that's our membership class, we were talking about what it, the power that comes. We had a room of about 12 people just sharing our grace story of how that connects and how exciting that gets. You say, well, that's how you're living out your faith in your context, and how exciting is that to see that? That makes me want to go do that as well. But there's something about living in a civilized, industrialized culture that compromises our rational thought. It's easier for us to get our priorities all out of whack when they revolve around the tangible things that we, we, all of a sudden we're no longer worried about survival, where our next meal is coming from or where the roof over our head is. Now we start to get really caught up into some of these other things. Financially, the richer you get, the richer I get, the more your priorities begin to separate from actual needs. When all of our basic requirements are met, we simply then turn that, that desire, that hunger uh, towards uh, changing and progressing, and we turn it on to things that we want now rather than the things that we need. Everyone's heard the statistics about what it's like to come to the U.S., uh, to live in America. If you live somewhere else, refugees talk about it. People who immigrate here will talk about it and say, you know what, it's like winning the lottery if you are here in the United States. We never really feel like this because the rich person is always someone else. It's always someone who has more than we do. It's all relative. Uh, Gallup just did a poll recently about quantifying wealth. Uh, people who make $50,000 a year believe that rich people make at least 100000 You would guess, and you probably see this coming, if you poll the people who make $100,000 a year, they figure the rich people are those who make $200,000 a year, and the $200,000, $400,000. And statistically, it's not just me saying that. That's actually the way that those reports work. When they answer those questions, they say, well, yeah, I only make $200,000 a year. If I made $400,000, then I would be rich. Andy Stanley writes this, rich is the other guy. Rich is that other family. Rich isn't just having extra. Rich is having as much extra as the person who has more extra than you do. Rich is having more than you currently have. In other words, people who are rich almost never feel healthy, just like those who have anorexia never understand the value of a meal. Because they just don't understand what they have. But let's be honest. My hunch is you're a lot richer than you realize. It just doesn't feel like it. And so what we're going to do this week and in this series is talk about actually how to be rich. Not how to get rich, but how to be rich. So maybe you don't feel this morning that you've crossed that imaginary line, whatever that line is. And, and if you cross that line tomorrow, tomorrow you will be rich, but today you're a pauper. But tomorrow maybe you'll be rich. But whenever you cross that line, wherever that line is, you ought to know how to live like you are rich. And we're going to talk about that today because living like you're rich is understanding that the value does not come from you. Let me go a little further with this. In the U.S., the annual income, if I told you you were going to get a new job and sign up for this new job and you'll give you a salary of $37,000 a year, just go in the back, sign up, and it's yours, not many of you would actually get out of your seats to do that. Chances are you wouldn't be interested. It would represent a pay cut for most Americans. 
But for 97% of the world's population, $37,000 a year would be a significant increase. In fact, here in the U.S., $16,000 is the poverty line. If you make $16,000 or less, that's the poverty line. You are still in the top 10% globally of what people make at the poverty level here in the United States. If you make $37,000 a year and you're in the top of that wage earners in the world, you are rich. Let's bring it closer to home. In this zip code where our church is located, 14221, the estimated median household income in 2013 is $73,647. That's two and a half times what globally we've already established is to be rich. Two and a half times that. So the rich people, we are two and a half times past that. The new construction permits here in Amherst, in this area, in 2012, there was 55 buildings, residential homes that were built in 2005, and those permits averaged $282,800 for the homes that were built in 2012. 2013, 82 buildings, so now you're getting up to six or eight homes a month that are being built. The average cost of each of those homes was $304,900. In 2014, there was 84 buildings, uh, houses that were built. The average cost of each of those buildings was $343,600. We are rich. And before you feel me pointing a finger at you or anything like that, I'm going to remind you, as many of you know, your three pastors here on staff live in this area. So your pastoral staff, we are loaded, all right? We live here. We've bought houses here. We moved Mario in last month. We moved Brian in yesterday. We live here. We are part of the problem, if you will. We are rich. Think about the problems that you deal with. Bad cell phone coverage. That's a rich people problem. Can't decide where you're going to go on your vacation. It's a rich people problem. Your computer crashed. You have slow internet. You have car troubles. You have flight delays. Amazon took more than three days to get your product to your house. This is a rich people problem. This summer, if you remember, there was a water main that broke, and we had to boil our water for two or three days. Remember that? Some of you a little bit longer. That, that watering bin, next time we have something like that, just remember that most people on this planet, mostly women, carry jugs of water on their heads for hundreds of yards just so that they can make a meal for their family. We are rich. Now we're in this series, we're beginning today, this In God We Trust series. And it is printed on our money, just the way that you saw there at the beginning. And, and before we get too far down that road, we need to realize that even in 2000, as it talked about in the opening credits there, in 2000, when it was voted again for In God We Trust, part of the debate and part of the discussion was, wait a minute, this is not actually uh, God that we trust. It's a, a non-religious version of In God We Trust. And that was written into the legislation that kept that on our coinage. A non-religious version of in God we trust for patriotism only so that everyone could be included when we say in God we trust. But that doesn't mean that you and I have to live that way. That doesn't mean that you and I can't look at the dollar bill and look at that and say, you know what, in God we trust, so I'm going to use this dollar the way that God has taught me to use it. 
There's no doubt we're living in unstable and turbulent times, as Cliff talked about as we were praying this morning. Uh, there are some difficult things that we wrestle with when we see these debates and we see the election going back and forth and you see all these awful things that are being said. And when you hear uh, Trump, when he says, I was only given a million dollars to start my first company and then I bootstrapped it from there. And the rest of us are rolling our eyes. Are you kidding me? This is, when we talk about being rich, this is a whole different level. When we see uh, the Clinton Foundation and how much that they get when they speak publicly, uh, the, the amount of money that is handed to them for that, it's ridiculous. But before we start pointing fingers, before we get to a point where we say, well, they're in a different category, they need to do something different. If we are going to come with the approach of in God we trust, then we need to have a different perspective. Because there's never been a better time to choose to intentionally walk out of here today to choose to have trust that God has it in control. In God we trust. So therefore, and we'll pick that up over the next number of weeks, in God we trust. Because for our culture, the topic of money and giving is one of the most difficult things to address. Yet the Bible has plenty to say about it. This series is about money, at least on the surface. That's where we start. It's a starting point for us. We believe it's important. We believe it's important to have this series line up before we get into the Christmas season. Because that Christmas season for Americans and for every person in this church is a time where people can get bought into the idea of the American dream or having more and having more stuff. And it all starts to kind of pull away at our foundations. In January, you start looking around and say, what happened? So it's important to have this series now, to talk about these things now. And in, in the election process, what's going on, to have this overarching big picture in God we trust. And so therefore, we can take steps forward. But this series is not just about money. It's that God is in the center of everything. And that what we possess actually belongs to God. And we are stewards of it. So in God we trust because I possess nothing of my own. That's the sermon title today. That's where we're beginning. If you'll take out your Bibles this morning, you can take the one from the pew in front of you if you'd like. Uh, if you're using that one, we're in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. If you're using that Bible, it's on page 451. If you're using your own Bible, I'm going to be in the New International Version today. Or you can use a version app on your phone if you'd like. Uh, just don't text anyone while we're here, okay? Let's stay together on this. In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, because we possess nothing of our own, here's the context. David, David was king over the nation of Israel for some 40 years at this point. Uh, he's been anointed as king by God himself. And as king, he has many, many possessions. He's considered to be a very rich man. He had his own palace in Jerusalem. Uh, and it was a very wealthy palace. It demonstrated his immense wealth. One of the things that David wanted to do in his life was build a temple in Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel. And as he started making moves towards doing that, he felt God was calling him and telling him to say, you have attained your wealth through war, and so you are not the right person to build this temple. But you can put things in place so that the next generation can do that. So as David neared the end of his life, he proclaimed his son Solomon would succeed him as king and became Solomon's task then to build the temple. And during his life, David had gathered great amounts of materials for the construction of the temple, not only for himself, but he had, he had set all the materials aside so they would be able to be put together. And before he died, David assembles the leaders, and that's what we're going to see here today, and the officials of Israel and his son Solomon to charge them regarding Solomon and his appointment as king and talk to them about the value of building this temple. 
When he charged them, he gathered them together to join him in giving in their possessions to add to what he had gathered for the temple. And here's what's significant about why David is talking about and what he's going to share here. Uh, one talent is about 10 years' wages for the average worker when he starts putting out these numbers. David gave 3,000 uh, Ks of gold and 7,000 of silver. In today's term, that's about $5 billion is what David is bringing to the table. Some scholars say that this is not uh, what David, this was probably his entire personal treasury. It was not a matter of him going and taking a portion. He, he was putting his entire personal treasury there. He didn't give out of his treasury. He gave his treasuries. It was a sacrificial gift that was going to demonstrate what was going to happen for the next generation. And specific for King Solomon, this is his inheritance in many ways. And he's saying, I'm giving all of that, putting all of that on the table for the temple because that's more important than anything, Solomon, that I could do for you. So... For a fill-in this morning, if you're using those little sheets of paper, those inserts that are in your bulletins this morning, our first fill-in is what people notice. What people notice. We're in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 6. What people notice, and this is generosity, gets people's attention. Generosity gets people's attention. Let me, let me explain. Verse 6, chapter 29, verse 6. Then the leaders of families, the officer and the tribes of Israel, and the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, and the officials in charge of the king's work gave willingly. They gave towards the work on the temple of God's 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. Anyone who had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the temple of the Lord in the custody of Jehiel, the Gershonite. So there was someone who actually was keeping tabs on this, who was a third party. The people rejoiced at the willing response for their leaders, for they had given freely and wholeheartedly to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. Generosity gets people's attention. We have the potential to create our reputation in the minds of those who do not share our beliefs. If I could magically have the power in this zip code, in this region of Western New York, if I could magically have the power to change everyone's perception of Randall Church or the church of Western New York, of what a Christ follower looks like, it would have to be based on generosity rather than theology. It would have to be based on generosity rather than theology. The people in the area, the ones with a bad attitude towards the church, or those particularly with a bad attitude towards the church of Western New York because they have interacted in a negative way, perhaps, with one of our churches in Western New York. Or maybe they have a bad attitude towards Christianity. Or maybe the politics that have gone on in this, and we watch our Christian leaders twist themselves and contort themselves in a way that our brothers and sisters in Christ, we don't understand why are you doing that for the name of a political party rather than the name of Jesus. When we see that happen, when you see that kind of action go on, you get a bad attitude towards Christianity, you know at the basis of that, if I could magically have the power to change that, it would be through generosity, not through theology. Why? Because generosity is powerful. Generosity tears down walls. We want people to be able to look at Christ's followers, to look at us and say, these are the most generous, compassionate, and competent people I know. It seems that they want genuinely, they want something for, for us rather than something from us. 
I wouldn't necessarily want to be one, but I'm glad that they are in our community. If that could be magically put out in everyone's minds in the area, it would be a significant change. I wouldn't want to be one, but I wouldn't want to be, I wouldn't mind being around one. I wouldn't want to be one, but I wouldn't mind working for one. I don't want to be one, but my daughter might marry one. I don't want to be one, but I'd like to live next to one, a Christian. And if you are here and that has not been your experience with Christianity, then shame on us. Shame on us, because that's really what Christian faith is. That's what it really means to follow Christ. But give us some some room, because we are still learning. We are still learning what it means to be a follower of Christ. And we, we mess up, and we screw it up. But at the end of the day, this is what a follower of Christ really would look like. Because generosity tears down walls. And no strings attached, generosity is central, is central to the gospel of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave. It's central to all that we do. What do people notice? Generosity gets people's attention. The second fill-in for you today, the hidden reality. The hidden reality. First Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 12. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I? Who are my people that we would be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Just who are we that we could possibly give in this way? How could we possibly do this in our own strength? And he says, we are nobody. It all comes from you. Just a few months into the Civil War, there was a sobering reality that started to set in that, damp- that was dampening the American psyche. Really what was going on, America had been founded on these strong convictions that fighting for your beliefs was noble and it was meaningful. But with only a few months and the, the battles that had ensued, realized that this was a tremendous cost. This battle, this war, this civil war between the North and the South was going to have tremendous price that was going to have to be paid in order to settle this conflict. For President Abraham Lincoln, he was going to have to look at things. His responsibility of all this was obvious. The Southern leaders, the South, had taken basically half of the country away, and it was his responsibility because of the great cost that that put on the nation. It was his responsibility to go and get them and bring them back, essentially. To accomplish this task, he began putting together an army of capable leaders. To command this army, he chose one General B. George B. McClellan. By the way, McClellan showed an amazing skill along the way for making and taking a normal American and making them into a soldier. And it was really inspirational the way that he could bring normal guys together and, and train them and develop them into this army. The massive army of the Potomac was training for battle in the Virginia countryside, and spectators would come and watch in awe and wonder at what was going on, at the spectacle of really what was being developed as the greatest army, the greatest fighting force on the planet. In fact, after one public watching, it's almost like preseason for football, where the public was allowed to come in, which is absolutely absurd to me in a time of war. 
But the public watching, they were able to come in, and uh, Julia Ward Howe was so inspired that she wrote the words to the battle hymn of the Republic by what she saw there with McClellan's army. That's how impressive he was. The North had been defeated at the Battle of Bull Run under the leadership of General McClellan's predecessor, and now it looked like they had regrouped. And it looked like under his leadership appeared they were finally ready to bring a quick conclusion to this civil war. But General McClellan waited, and he waited. His advisors started to begin to argue with him, and there was even like a civil war within his own leadership structure that they were fighting with him about the fact that he was not going into battle. General McClellan, at first it seemed like he was really poising himself because he would talk about it, and he said, every man in this army matters, and if we lose their life, I'm not going to waste life inappropriately. But what happened was he refused to rush, and in time, Congress demanded action. And yet he didn't move. Yes, all winter long, delays continued. December, January, February, March, and finally in April of 1864, three, he began his timid campaign. The army went to fight at Yorktown against a handful of rebels posing as a larger enemy. The regiment from the north outnumbered those there at a number of 10 to 1. But the rebels, instead of fighting with normal practice, they actually took logs and they cut them into pieces and painted them black and put them all along the top. It looked like there was cannons aimed out. They, they faked him out. They, they made him look foolish because he had no idea what to do. And he withdrew, and he did this multiple times in battle because he said that he was preserving his army to fight another day, to fight next time, and have a better day the next day. The last straw came at Antietam. It could have easily been a rout for McClellan's army, and except that when they went to battle, he continually would draw back a fourth of the troops at different times so that them restructure. And, and, and what happened was not only did they restructure, but the Confederate army was able to continue after wave after wave after wave to withstand the northern army. It resulted in the bloodiest day of the war. Lincoln determined that he was going to visit, make a visit at this point to those who were encamped near Antietam. He walked with the Illinois Secretary of State, Mr. Hatch, he said. Hatch, what is this? Mr. Lincoln was the response. This is the Army of the Potomac. Lincoln replied, no, Hatch, no. This is General McClellan's bodyguard. He had taken... General, he had, it was the model general except for one thing. He embraced the false assumption that all of these troops and all of the equipment, and, and he had spent more dollars than anyone else had ever spent on building an army, that all of this was his, and it was all his responsibility to manage. And at the end of the day, he never quite managed to serve the true objective of war, and that was to go into battle. And he's not that much different from today's wealthy Americans. We possess more than most of the people around the world and throughout history that they could ever dream about. We have everything that we need, but we lose sight of what we need it for. What is the point? Everything that we have comes from Him. This revolutionary truth that David is teaching here, he tells us, he says, nothing you have belongs to you. The house you live in, it's not yours. 
the second house that you own. And I don't have a problem if you've got a second house. Uh, in, invite me to come over to it sometime. Like, I, I don't mind that, but it's not yours. Those talents are not yours. Nothing you have belongs to you. And you say, I worked for this stuff. Great. The skills, the talents that you have, the employment that you were able to acquire, how did you get them? The air that you breathe, the health that you enjoyed, where did you get that? Do you really think that if you were born as a homeless kid in Ethiopia with HIV AIDS, that you would be in the same spot that you are in right now? Absolutely not. It all comes from God. Nothing you have belongs to you. Not a penny you have, not a thing you truly own belongs to you. God allows us to hold on to some of these possessions. In doing so, he places us in stewardship responsibility. In modern day, that term is called a fiduciary responsibility. Many of you know this, but a modern day fiduciary includes, for example, an executor of a will or a trustee of a trust or directors of a corporation. Such, these fiduciaries are held at a high responsibility. The decisions that they make, the moves that they make is in responsibility to those who have been entrusted to them. And they are held uh, to confidently and prudently, uh, with good faith and with loyalty. It is their charge to do the job of those who actually own the company or who actually have put them in that place to do the trust. And our responsibility is to God. And if we treat possessions in this way, if we understand that we hold God's possession in trust for Him and for what He uses, then these possessions are to serve Him and not ourselves. And then we serve Him. It totally excludes serving self with them. It changes the game. What do people notice? Generosity gets people's attention. What is the hidden reality? I possess nothing on my own. What is the most valuable thing on earth? What's the most valuable thing on earth that the next generation would know and follow God? David in verse 18 says this, Lord, the God of our fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. And give my son Solomon the wholehearted devotion to keep your commands, statutes, and decrees and do everything to build the, the palace structure for which I have provided. What are you doing with your life that will last forever? The most valuable thing on earth is the next generation coming to know Jesus Christ. That's it. That is the most valuable thing that we could do. You've heard me say it here before. There's a heritage of faith here, but it is for the next generation. Bonhoeffer talks about the fact that God has given us children and our full responsibility is to give God back to those children. It's our full responsibility. David, as he approaches death, calls before them his own son Solomon. He says, look at your children. This is the most important thing you could do. This is the most valuable thing on the earth. There's something about being a dad and hopefully I have more years to come. I hope that I'm not on my deathbed here, but I want to be able to pour myself into my kids so that the next generation would know and love Jesus. And you may not have kids, and you're not here this morning, and you, you've, you've walked a different line, and you don't have kids either in this room or you don't have kids at all. We've got a bunch of them downstairs. You can pour yourself into them. Pour yourself into the next generation. Why? Because eternity is forever. This little narrow time that we call life, just a blip on the map. 
we stand before God and the most important thing that we do, the most important thing that a person at any moment can do is to bring someone else with them to Jesus. That is the most valuable thing on the earth. If we can start thinking about our lives, and if you would think about your lives in the perspective of eternity, I think you would say, I want to spend all of my resources, my time, my talent, and my treasure on things that are related to the kingdom of God rather than this world that I live in or what's happening in my neighborhood or my street or my address. I want to invest in things of God. So as we're bringing it to a close, I want you to answer this question. How much money would you need to secure your future against all imaginable eventualities? How much money would you need to secure your future against anything that might come up? How much would that take? And the answer is most likely this, more than you currently have. This is always the answer. Why? Because what happens is something called hope migration. Hope starts to move at, well, I just need a little bit more. I need to go a little bit farther with that. Or I need to be able to assemble myself a little bit better. You know, in the United States, it's documented, not with believers, this is across the board. When people do their taxes, if you make $50,000 a year across the board, people give 5 to 8% to, as charitable contributions. 5 to 8% at $50,000. When you get up towards $200,000, that drops, percentage drops to less than 1%. And as the income gets higher, the percentage gets smaller and smaller and smaller. The dollar amount goes up because there's so much more to be had. But this, this idea that we will one day be in a spot where we can do more is foolishness. It's foolishness. Wealth can become a wedge between you and God. When we close our hands so tight around wealth and we wonder if we could become a terribly rich person so then we could give it away, it never happens. So that's the problem. Here's the solution. Put your hope in God. Jesus says it, and then Paul later says this. Don't be arrogant. Don't put your hope in wealth. Put your hope in God. You cannot serve two masters is what Jesus says in Matthew. Why hope in riches when you can provide hope in the one who richly provides? So try this as an anxiety test. Which statement creates the most anxiety in this moment, today, this morning, for you? This statement there is no God. Or this statement, you have no money. Which one of those statements gives you personally more anxiety? When you are dying, you're at life end, chances are you will put your hope in or you will understand and you will actually be wrapped around the idea of there is no God. That would be the worst possible thing when you come to the end of your life. And I hope that you get to a point that you're not going to get to that where you're saying, well, when I'm there, then I will put my hope in God. But why not put your hope in him in the middle of your life today when you still have control over what happens next? Another way of saying this, when you put your hope in the provision, uh, when you have an opportunity to put your hope in the provider, put your hope in God. This puts a stop to that hope migration, that, that movement that says, well, I just need a little bit more. I just need another step. I just need to add to the pile. Because when you continue down this, you end up chasing after something you will never catch. 
You will lose out in the end. And then it always leads to unhappiness and joy will be lost. And I'm not asking you to do something that we are not already doing as a church. If you look at our budget again, we shared this this morning in our DNA sessions, our membership class. This year, our annual budget is for $475,000. It's a lot of money. In that, 30% of every budgeted dollar that comes in, when you put a dollar in, 30% of that leaves this building and goes out of here. That's a total of $145,000 that goes out to local and global missionaries and organizations. We're actually practicing what we preach. We're actually going out and doing this. Why? Because God owns it all from beginning to end. And as David says here, for all things come from you. So this morning as the band comes up, maybe you need to make this game-changing declaration. I will not place my hope in riches, but I'll place my hope in him who richly provides. David ends his life by giving generously to build the temple. He gave so generously that he altered his lifestyle and even his, uh, the inheritance that he would be able to give to Solomon. He altered all of that to give to the temple. And then we find in the New Testament, we look, Jesus, he is the one who is the new temple. Remember him talking to the rich young ruler and he was telling him about sacrifice. He says, give it all away to the poor and walk away. Do we need to do that ourselves? Maybe not. What was he getting at? Where is your heart? Do you have an understanding of what you have is all what God has given you? And as we make our way through this series, as we talk through what it really means to say, in God we trust, then in God we trust, and that means that it doesn't matter who is in the Oval Office. That means that it doesn't matter uh, what bank your money is in, and it doesn't matter. Those things don't matter. Why? Because God has it all under control. If the people were moved to sacrifice greatly by the example that David, their king, had made, how much more should we be moved by the example that Jesus Christ made, that God the Father, through his son Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice and the gift that he made? It's a familiar verse, but it brings it all together for us this morning. Because the world is passing away and eternity matters, and one day everyone would stand before God. And John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that who would ever believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's what he did for you and for me. And if you're here this morning, I do pray that generosity would get your attention. If you have not uh, decided to follow Christ yet, I pray that you would see people around you. This would be a church around you that gives with open hands and says, it's all God's. Look what he did for me. It's the least that I could do to be able to impact and change the zip code that we live in. It's the least that we could do for Western New York to look a little bit better because Randall Church is here. That's the least that we could do, and I pray that that gets your attention. If you're part of this congregation, I pray that that excites you, that we would be a church that would do that. We would be people that sit next to each other in the aisles and say, you know what? I'm going to do more to give more away as much as I possibly can because when I do that, people can see the very hand of God because God so loved that he gave. And that's what I'm going to do. And that's what I'm going to do. Dear Lord, thank you so much. This morning, if there are those here when I quote that scripture from John 3.16, that they have never accepted that gift. Lord, I pray that they would be at least interested to do that this morning, that they would meet me in the back during this next song and I could share that 
with them. Or if it's not me, Lord, that there would be, there are, there's a wealth of people in here who know the gospel and could share that with them. Lord, let them be willing to ask someone today. If you are here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, would you take that step to ask someone today, tell me more about this Jesus. Lord, there are many of us here today who are still assuming that one day we will cross over that line of how to be rich. But we are way past that. Scripture tells us that there are cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth beyond what we could ever imagine. We've got that resource at our fingertips. And generosity will get people's attention. And so we give ourselves away, Lord. We give ourselves away financially. We give our time away. We give our talents away to serve you so that the gospel can go forth. Lord, there are some here today. If you're here today and you need to make that decision, says, you know what, I am going to change from just being a person who tips God financially or with time or whatever it is to actually sacrificially, as David demonstrates here, give it back to you. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word. We pray that we could walk away from today and the rest of this series truly saying, in God we trust. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.